0: Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email andrew at info at Or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. How is everybody doing out there this week? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding Podcast. Co-founder of Focused Compounding Capital Management and the website, Mm -hmm. Mr. Jeff Gannon. How's it going over there? It's going great. How's it going with you? It is going great. It's 90 degrees outside today in Dallas. In Texas, yeah. In Texas, it is heating up. It's the first really hot day we've had. Yeah, my family's from Chicago, and I think they said it was like 45 degrees still out there. It's 90 degrees today, so it's starting to heat up here. Uh, We hope everybody is having a great week. If you do want to get access to our weekly memos that we send out, go to focuscompany.com. You could sign up for free. If you do become a member, use the podcast promo code, which will take $10 off the subscription price. Uh, You get a bunch of write-ups from Jeff and a few other members, and you also get a premium memo uh, about once a week uh, that shows a watch list of stocks that Jeff is currently researching and working on
0: yeah and the uh the free memo which you just give your email address for i revamped that and now it's really long it yeah. used to be short and now it's a couple thousand words
1: yeah like when you sent it to me today i was like wow that's why i asked your first question when i saw them there. i was like how long did that take you to to complete yeah. that so, so it was, it's more like an now it's article length definitely yeah. yeah it's super super good so if you are interested in that definitely go to focus compounding and turn your email and you will get that in your email box every week if you are on twitter I do tweet out a bunch of content. Follow me at, at FocusedCompound on Twitter. Okay. So sort of the theme lately has been we've been answering a lot of questions from a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we don't want that to become too redundant. But I also think it's good because it's, you know, we're answering what is on a lot of our viewers' minds. Right. And it also gives us content. And it's just yeah. good
0: because we don't want to just I, do this for you and I. We're doing this for other people, right. obviously. And people are now sending it in without yeah, any that, mention that we're doing Yeah, and They just, there's a get this in all the time now yeah, yeah
1: absolutely so if if you want to have a question answer just dm me on twitter mm-hmm. and even if i don't answer to it i'm gonna pull it probably the next time that we are gonna do a QA because it's just it's good for us to talk about what a lot of people are interested in yeah I think. right before we sit down to record we always check what uh, questions we've had yep so if you're interested in that just definitely give me a dm um So we'll just roll right into it, and we will um, answer a bunch of different questions. So the first one, this is actually on a stock that we personally own, and I think people have asked us um, this before. It says, so when you're looking at a stock like Cool K-E-W-L, but I guess this also relates to other dark stocks as well. He says, that does not report with the SEC and has non-PCAOB audits. Mm -hmm. How do you assess the risk of the numbers being wrong?
0: Okay, so let's start by explaining what PCAOB is. Uh, PCAOB is... Uh, public company accounting oversight um and a board yeah, I was say board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's another letter there but <laughs> the point is um it, it what that refers to though is the um the auditors who audit a public company um so uh, in that question the, the point is if you don't have those reports and so I, I go to that website and and just so people know this, there's a website where you would uh, be able to look up information on the accountants of any. Uh, um, uh, firm that you have, any company that you have, because they will say in the financial statements who their accountant is, that's who's signing off on the, uh, there's a page that appears right before the financial statements and the account signs off on it. That name is something that you can look up and they are inspected, uh, through a sampling process. Uh, they sample a few of their audits, usually like maybe five or something they'll pull. And then they, uh, then you're seeing an inspection report that says if there were any issues um, uh, with those audits, if there are any violations and things like that. You also find out other things that can be more serious than that. In fact, I wrote up a um, company, I won't say the name of the company, but on the pay website, uh, and uh, it a reason why I passed on the stock in part was because the um, uh, the auditor was banned from auditing public companies because of something related to audits of that company.
1: Kind of sketchy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that's unusual and then they replaced him with a uh, auditor at the same firm. Yeah. Which I think was probably a two person firm although I can't confirm that. Um, so and they did disclose that there had been a connection between the two but they did not disclose that he the the reason he resigned was because as the auditor was because he could no longer audit a public company and it was because of uh audits that they had had on that particular company so anyway uh normally it doesn't give you detailed information about a particular public company's audit it'll just refer to them as like issuer a issuer b, but it gives you plenty of information about the auditor, okay, sure, including things like the size of of how many public companies they audit, things like that so it's a good thing to look at. And you're usually going to find if it says you know that they audit thirteen different public uh, issuers, that's a lot more comforting than you know one, and it's the one you're looking at. Uh, so first of all, in the case of Cool, actually they switched to Grant Thornton, which mm-hmm. is a really big uh, accounting firm. Recently, so, yeah. yeah, just for this most recent statement, yeah, yeah, they just did it. So actually, the one that was just released, they had switched to them, and they probably switched to them pretty late in the process there. Um, because we know when they announced it, uh, they had said, we're going to switch. And then I noticed that the, uh, financial statements for this year, which just ended actually already had Grant Thornton as the auditor. So they did switch it. Um, b- but you're often looking at companies that, that don't. So the issue, let's see, you kind of read what management says and gather some ideas about whether you think manage, management is candid and things like that, um you look at some of the accounting things uh for instance, giving the example of the company I will not name it wasn't just that they had an auditing thing. I actually looked up the auditor specifically um trying to find a connection between two people uh at the firm because of something else that was in the company statements, which was like a a factoring agreement that they had with some of their uh uh well, their receivables, but as part of the collateral. They used inventory. Um, so it was secured in part by inventory, although the actual amount of borrowing they were allowed to do was related to, to the receivables. But um, I was concerned because the amount of inventory they had had grown a lot and uh, was a lot of raw material inventory. And so that kind of thing is, I don't know, it's just inventory accounting. And when you have a ton of, you're reporting a lot of earnings, which are just more and more raw materials that you're buying. And then that's how you're borrowing from a bank. Is related to what levels of inventory you say you have. Uh, you know, that starts to get into issues of things that you go, okay, uh, the yeah. the accounting here is important mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And it could be unusual. So when you see that, that's uh, a big sign. And then the other thing is just like if it, the accounting looks aggressive or conservative. Sure. I've looked at companies that have oddly conservative accounting sometimes where they seem to be writing things off faster than they should and things like that. And I've seen some that, that might be aggressive. In that case, it might be aggressive. Uh, A lot of things are just if the stock is promotional in any way, stuff like that. Um, Other basic things we've talked about before, uh, are they incorporated in Nevada? That's usually a negative. Um, Were they uh, any sort of reverse merger where they went into another company? In this case, we're talking dark stocks. So um, what you would have instead is um, the circumstances under which they went dark. So were they once a public company, some things happened and they decided to stop um, uh, filing with the SEC? Mm -hmm. Or... Is it like some of the stocks that we have that um were not filed with the SEC many, many decades ago? So I mean there there are doc there are dark stocks that have n- that have been public for fifty years and not filed with the SEC, which is a very different group. Can you explain for the listeners,
1: because we've had so many discussions about this, mm-hmm. why um companies that
0: incorporate in Nevada could be are sort of a red flag for you? Yeah, so it's just a legal thing. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of wonderful companies in Nevada and if you're yeah. doing business in Nevada, that's fine. But if you're in a state somewhere else and you're incorporating Nevada for much of the same reasons that you'll notice most uh, or many public companies you look at are in in Delaware, even though they have nothing to do with Delaware. That's to take advantage of certain corporate uh, law stuff in Delaware. Well, in Nevada, my one concern is that it's to take advantage of certain laws about fraud. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because a couple of weeks ago I came across, it was like a pump and dump yeah.
1: type of stock. And, and when I was looking at their filings, it, it was um it went from like one to ten. It was like an email pump, or one of those right. scammy companies, and they were corporate in Nevada.
0: Yeah. So, the, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, can't speak about this, but I would say that uh, if you were an executive who was concerned that you might be held personally responsible for some sort of fraudulent acts undertaken by a corporation, because normally... Um, what would happen is that you would not be personally held responsible for certain corporate acts uh, unless there was something like fraud involved. Mm-hmm. And I think that it would be harder to prove that there was and to hold you personally responsible in Nevada than in some other States. So there's your free legal advice. Yeah. So anyway, I think the best thing to see is that the company is, is incorporating the place that they've, the state that they've always been in. I think that's always the best one. Um, as far as the auditor thing, the one other thing is if they have an auditor, who at least is also in the same place they are that would help me out a lot uh i would think it odd and i've seen it before where you have an auditor that seems to have no connection to the business um and is in a completely different part of the country or something like that um that's really odd if you're a small company then you should have plenty of accountants around you that could audit you and you would think that they would so if you're you know in uh new york city and you've always been in new york city then i would expect that you might have an auditor who's in that same area uh and not you know um in buffalo i mean even in the same state but but having no connection that way that's not terrible to see that but i have seen that and even with companies that uh do audits of public companies it is something i've seen sometimes where i don't know i wonder if they shop for the you know what auditor and things like that yeah
1: got it cool Thank you very much for that question. Okay, let's see. Next question. Given that you are investing in illiquid securities with a concentrated strategy, as I do, or as do I, that's what he said, how do you enter and exit a stock? Do you put a big buy order in with a limit and let it play out over the next weeks or months? Do you split the bid and ask and hope for the best, or are you constantly picking up a small amount of shares along the way at a time?
0: Um, compared to what most people might think, I would say large bid, lower price. So, larger yeah. bid, larger volume, bidding for a larger volume of stock than you might think, but bidding at a lower price than you would think. Often, it's a couple uh, percent.
1: I mean, yeah. we, the, the first, when we it, first started bidding, it was a little bit lower, but now it's normally probably about a,
0: a percent under the, the last bid, I would under say. Under the last bid, right. Yeah. Which is, we're not even talking about the last trade here yeah. or between the bid and ask, but okay. that we are bidding at a price that's lower than the best bidder at the moment. So, if someone's bidding, uh, you know three uh thirty four dollars and twenty five cents for something uh we would be uh bidding less than thirty four twenty five uh meaning that we're not the best bidder when we do that um the logical reason for why you would do that um is that i mean it's volume it, a lot of times the stock you'll see the last pr- uh, the last trade price and the bid in the ask and, and what you'll see is basically someone's bidding for 100 shares of stock. Someone's asking uh, for 100 shares of stock. The last trade was 100 shares of stock, some, some number like that. And we want a lot more shares than that. So it may be possible if we want 10,000 instead of 100 that once uh, that when they're selling to us uh, that we could have that done at a price that's even lower than the last bid that you had. Because what you're assuming is that just because someone bid for 100 shares... Um, that's the only way that you could get someone to sell to you, right, is the price that you see for them. But bidding for 100 shares is not actually the same thing as bidding for, you know, as an extreme example, 100,000 shares. Uh, you know, I know that when I owned some very illiquid stocks that were big positions for me, I completely ignored when people were, were trying to buy 100 shares. I would not, you know, sell my position in little dribs of 100 uh, shares that time. But if someone wanted 10,000, then that's a different story. And so that can be the case. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't want to move the price. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there's stuff that people would say, depending on the stock, um, you might not want to bid in certain ways. That, I mean, people might be concerned that their bids give away too much information about what their plans are. Um, that people would see that there's someone trying to bid for a large amount of stock stuff like that I don't know that that's that big of a problem if you aren't increasing your bid and, and what you'll notice um, And you know because we, we've done it. We don't really chase after a stock where we keep increasing the price No, I would
1: say probably I mean we just literally just put a, a GTC order in right a Good to cancel order in. I do all the trading uh, for the firm and we'll just put a, a good to cancel order and Just kind of let it sit like There's, and there's been times where it, it could take us a week to get filled, but right. we're not I mean we're fine with that question. But yeah. Honestly, I mean if you think of these stocks that we're investing in, specifically illiquid securities, mm-hmm. um, they can move around a lot based on just normal buying. I mean, nothing right. that has anything to do with really the company. So a lot of times we'll just put a, a bid in probably one percent or two percent below the the lowest bid or the bid, that's, oh, the being currently, bid yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's currently being offered, and then just kind of put a good cancel order and let it, you know, hit us. And we haven't had any problems with it at all. We've gotten every right. single price pretty much that we wanted. I think um Was it
0: Maui Land and Pineapple Company ran Mm -hmm. a little bit on us? But other than that, we've pretty much got filled out every single bit that we wanted. Yeah, and when we're saying that it ran up on us, what we mean really is that we didn't get all the shares we wanted and it went up. Not that each day we had to increase it um, to buy more. Because that's the difference here is that um, I I am willing at times to buy at much higher prices than the current price. But what we don't do is keep adjusting the price to try to get the volume to to get traded now. And the other thing about um, – it might seem like a silly thing to to bid a f- couple percent below what the, um, uh, the last trade was or something like that. But if you're going to buy a lot of a stock, um, you might have some caution when it comes to not wanting to make the stock um, – not wanting to get draw attention to the stock, right? When you're buying a stock, you don't want to draw attention to it. And so you definitely don't want to... If you're buying a huge amount of volume in a stock that has little volume, the one thing you really don't want is for it to be going up on large volume. So if it's flat on large volume, that's really going to draw a lot less attention than if people see that it's up a lot. And even in these really small stocks, you'll see... Um, if you go read a, a thread, read threads at like corner of Berkshire and Fairfax or read blogs and the comments and then of the little value kind of community that we're in for people who own the stock and stuff. If, if a stock goes up 5% or something on a really big amount of volume, it will get them looking at it and stuff. And what you don't want if you're buying a stock is to draw any unneeded attention to it, uh, at all, you know? Mm-hmm. So mostly what you're trying to do is just not disrupt. I would say you try not to disrupt things as best that you can. And, other than that, I guess it's up to psychology and stuff about how you want to do it. Personally, uh, what you think works best, but you know, you don't want to do things which um, alter the price on you in a negative way. Sure. And and uh, for me, I've always found, compared to what people think, that there can be a lot more volume than you think available in a stock, and the only way to find out is to to go out there and try, and to try for a while. I'm talking about trying for a you know, a month, not trying for a day. Yeah, sure. Yeah.
1: And there's been, like I said, plenty of cases
0: where it's been like a week to two weeks to get filled. But mm-hmm. We're totally yeah. fine with it. I mean. And obviously, you know, this is common sense, but the important thing is what matters more than anything else is getting you your best average price on it, your lowest possible average price. And that's what really matters. And so just figuring out for you what you think will do that. And then other than that, it's, you know, judgment and guesswork and stuff. We're not experts on trading. Yeah.
1: Got it. Um, next question. He has a question on the timing of purchases of spinoffs. He said, "How do you, Jeff? How do you and Jeff decide when to buy a spinoff? Assuming you want to, Greenbot discusses that a lot of spinoff returns may come in year two. So, what does this mean for buying? Should you buy in year one? If so, when? Right after the spinoff? A few weeks after? Three or four months later? Or perhaps even later?
0: If so I had just the guess, timing on spinoffs, yeah. If I had to guess, I'd probably guess twelve months later. Um, that's not necessarily when we do it." um if i you know the answer for a stock generally is if it has a price that you love buy it now if you're sure you love the price now buy it now cuz it might change on you in a in a bad way so if you can live with it going nowhere for a year uh that's fine or going down that's fine you you can afford to be early but yeah as a rule i think it might be true that a a, a full year after an a, a spin off um would be when you get some of the um in oh, maybe I should say the the most increase per year probably happens after year one. Even if the stock does increase in the first year, it probably increases more rapidly in years two and three and things like that. Um, but also, you know, spinoffs have very different, um, sorts of profiles about things. I mean, for instance, um, KLX energy services, um, was a spinoff, and it's done a lot of acquisitions and stuff since the spinoff. So it's, you know, you watch it carefully, and you try to to figure out things. Have I ever considered buying KLX? Um, Yeah. Uh, There was a brief moment where it got really, really cheap, and then I paid a lot of attention to it. Um, That didn't last very long. And then there was also a couple cases, maybe two, where they did a really – an acquisition that really changed things, especially increasing their debt to do it. So it really changed um, the company's uh, leverage situation and and things like that. So when certain changes happen within that year or whatever, um, yeah, I think you just watch it very, very carefully for the first year. Um, In some cases you might be able to guess. Um, I can think of like uh, Wabtech did a deal with um, GE, uh, which basically half of uh, – They ended up owning half of the the company that resulted from it, and uh, so so the company's not counted as a spinoff or something as it exists today, but basically GE spun off part of itself into WebTech. As a result, GE shareholders got some uh, stock, but also GE got stock. GE has to sell that stock within prescribed time periods, so you can actually see when the selling would presumably be heaviest, and in that case, I think it's between 30 and 180 days. For BWX Technologies, did Mm -hmm. you buy that pre-spin? Yes. Why did you do that? I was very worried that it would go up and it did not. Really? <laughs> Whereas in the case of NACO, I did not pay enough attention to it beforehand. Yeah. It went up a huge amount. Massive. I mean, in like one. the year before, yeah. Um, so, and then everyone was like done with it. (laughs) I mean, I I should say NC continued to go up a bit and, and Hamilton beach brands did decline and stuff. But if you kind of netted out a really big part of the return in buying the combined company, which I think a lot of people did, would be buying it before, uh, this, this the breakup. So yeah. I think in some cases buying before is a good idea. I would definitely look at buying before a spinoff. Um, and, and I would even look at it. Sometimes companies that plan to spin off and then don't do it and things like that. I mean, NACO had planned to do that uh, same sort of spin off many years before, and then you know they had, there was problems in the stock market and they decided not to spin it off at that time. Um, just like some companies decide not to do an IPO in the middle of you know a financial crisis or something. But it gives you a hint of what they're planning to do. They'll probably you know spin it off eventually, and they did. Um, so as soon as it's announced, you watch it carefully. Um, and you know, probably, probably six months before the spinoff to a year after is probably the time where you have the most changes in sentiment and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a stock could definitely be at its least, um, its least well known, and potentially most overlooked, most um, inefficiently priced mm-hmm. a year after. But that's not always the case. I can think of spinoffs that, because of that book, you can be a stock market genius. I can definitely see certain value investors who love spinoffs and and um, really get excited about them, especially as like a short-term thing. There's a lot of people who will buy a spinoff and sell it within a year.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it's more just a catalyst that happens. I think there's Capture a lot who would like to yeah. buy
0: and then sell in a year, um, which is generally not what we're doing, I would say. Um, you know, If prices move a lot, that could happen, I guess, but... That's not usually what we're looking for. So I guess we're looking more for the right price to buy in at. And I would say I paid attention from the beginning, but I definitely don't think that a one-year-old spinoff is, is too old to be considered still a spinoff. I definitely think watch it for the whole year. And if I had to guess, I would probably guess in my experience, just anecdotally, that yeah, they go up the most sometime after year one. Year one is rarely the year where there's the biggest increase in a single year.
1: All right, next question comes from a gentleman that asks about your ranking order. Mm-hmm. And as we talked about on the podcast many times with the portfolio, we have like a batting order, if you will, of, of like number one being the stock that you like the most and number six or number 10, whatever being the stock that you like the least. And in the premium memo as well, that's sort of how you lay it out for um, all the members to be able to see what you're most interested in at the time. Mm -hmm. So he says, when Jeff maintains his ranking order of the five investments that you hold for clients, what is the key factor of the position in that order? Are they ordered by perspective rate of return? For example, number one being an IR of 17%, number two being an IR of 16%, number three being an IR of 12%. Or perhaps is it more so of a confidence in meeting a hurdle rate of, say, 10%? For example, for the first one being 95% confident that returns will exceed 10% per year, while number two being 90% confident that all the, and then he says all the way up to five, which Mm -hmm. could be 60% confidence. Or perhaps is it based on overall riskiness? So basically, he's asking, how do you, do you think about it in like the ones that you think you're going to make the most money on? Is Mm -hmm. it more so the ones that you feel highest probability that you'll make money on? How do you think about it?
0: It's the one I feel most comfortable holding. Uh, So it's definitely not the IRR one. There are many times where I might think that a stock has a potentially high IRR, IRR, but um, I guess a way that is easy to think about it is, what if I woke up tomorrow and the stock had dropped a lot on some sort of um, bad news that I couldn't have predicted or something, right? So what if you hear um, that this company is restating its financial statements or Um, that it's suddenly going to do something else that you're not expecting, you know, it lost a big customer or whatever, those sorts of things. How big, how likely is that to get you to um, reassess the uh, position entirely? Right. And so basically, I guess you could think of it as a measure that whatever's number one in my thinking is the thing that's most difficult uh, to imagine something happening, which fundamentally alters the way uh, that I feel about holding the stock. And the one that you have, uh, your fifth, sixth, whatever favorite, you know, at the bottom of your list, your least favorite ones, are the ones that are closest to that. Now, often that's price, to be honest, Um, because if you have a really high price, even on a good business, uh, it doesn't take a lot of change in my assessment of the company uh, to get me not to want to hold on to it. So if a stock is at 25 times earnings, then yeah, unless I'm really, really sure about future growth. It would be really easy for a bad year or something uh, to come out and give me bad guidance and then, oh, the stock's too expensive. Why am I holding something that's this expensive? You know, if you hold a stock that's 25 times earnings and then they put out guidance that next year's sales will be down a little bit, that's not that uh, exciting. So that that makes you want to think about selling. Sure. So we have a couple stocks that are pretty expensive. Uh, however, the likelihood that they would put out guidance or something saying, uh that sales will decline next year is really low. It's not impossible, but like in one case, I think their sales have increased every year for the last 20-some years or something. So uh, I would really have to reassess it if uh, they had a decline in sales, you know.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Whereas something that's really, really cheap, that's not true for it. So to give an example, I would say that our most expensive stock is on like a cash earnings basis, like a free cash flow basis, probably about three times more expensive than the cheapest stock we own. So actually, the really expensive stock doesn't rank that high in terms of my confidence in holding the stock. I'd be really confident in the business, um, but it's just the price that makes that difficult, right? So anytime you get to something that's 25 times earnings or something, that, that's hard. So the price is always part of it, but it's just whatever stock the, – the stock that's at the top of my uh, list is just whatever it would take the most to get me to reconsider the possibility of selling it, mm-hmm. um, to change my position in some way with it. Uh, and it is in part a combination of price, but it's also like predictability sort of thing. It's usually not really an IRR thing. Um, so like, do you have a hurdle rate in mind? Yeah. Yeah, I have a hurdle rate in mind with everything we buy. Mm-hmm. It won't buy it. We have a little bit of cash. Sure. And that's because I don't find things that match the hurdle rate. Mm-hmm. The hint that I'll give is, look, um, if you go back over the whole history of the U.S. stock market, I'd say realistically you have about a 9% nominal return over that entire time uh-huh. so you would want a number and you know we charge fees and things so you would want a number that that doesn't uh leave people uh off poor than they could be in an index over a very long period of time, not next fee. stuff. Yeah, yeah yeah exactly so um that's really what we're talking about uh, sometimes it gets hard because you know sometimes if the market's expensive You know, there's the question of should you lower the discount rate because, you know, the hurdle that you have to clear because you really can't find other things. We don't do that, and so I do hold some cash. Um, I would like to always be fully invested, and I would be fully invested if I was – as long as I could find things that clear that hurdle. And I guess you can see that there's a portion of the uh, portfolio is in cash, which means that there's some reason why I don't have quite enough things um, that all clear that hurdle that I think are good – investments that i have confidence will return you know at least that amount so basically i don't buy things that i think in the long run will return less than that amount uh that we're looking for and you know that amount is very high single digits or very low double digits somewhere yeah. in that you know. so you think about it in terms of opportunity costs yeah when comparing the stocks it's one against the other that way mm-hmm. absolutely
1: yeah. and then how certain do you, or how certain you feel about that opportunity cost is definitely right. an element of it mm-hmm. yeah yeah Cool. Well, that's the last question for today. If you guys want to, like I said in the beginning of the show, if you want to have a question asked of us or answer on the show, uh, definitely tweet it to me or you can uh, DM me and we'll compile them together and we will answer them on the next show. If you do like the work that we're doing here, mm-hmm. and we are on Spotify now too. That's a new announcement. Okay. I forgot to announce at the beginning of the show. We are on Spotify, but if you do like the work that we're doing here, please feel free to go to your uh, the podcast app on your iOS device and give us a rating and review. That's how the algorithm works and that definitely helps us out. Obviously, this is for free. So Mm -hmm. that will uh, be great for us. And we'd really appreciate that. Other than that, thank you so much for everybody tuning in. Have a great week. We'll see you in the next podcast.
0: Hey, this is Jeff Gannon. And that was the Focus Compounding podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month. But if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at or text or call Andrew at four six nine two zero seven five eight four four. That's four six nine two zero seven five eight four four. Thanks for listening.